You can support the Historian's Podcast by going to our website, bobcudmore.com, looking for the GoFundMe link, and you can make a donation there and also find out how you can donate online. I'm Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. We say hello to Dave Green. I don't know if I ever have brought up this building to you. I've done a column about it recently because it's been in the news. If you have, does the do the words Guy Park Manor have any kind of a meaning to you? I've I've certainly heard you mention it many times uh, over the years. Is is it the building that that flooded out about ten years ago? It is, and it's been vacant ever since. I mean, it's the strangest thing in a way. Um, there was a terrible thing that happened there. One of the floods caused by hurricanes, or actually two, a hurricane and a tropical storm. A hurricane Irene, tropical storm Lee, really did a number on Guy Park Manor. At the time, the manor was home to the Walter Elwood Museum, and a lot of their collection was pretty much ruined. And after the the, the disaster, after the flooding, they... Um, relocated again. The Elwood Museum, it seems, is always looking for a place to go. And they now uh, are headquartered in some of the old mill buildings in Amsterdam, which have the advantage of being up on higher ground. But Guy Park Manor recently got an award, I guess you'd say, or, you know, a state agency or the state agency that uh, oversees uh, Guy Park Manor, um, uh, put, is putting up $36 million for more restoration, which they say will make it um, possible to use Guy Park Manor uh, in the future. The manor was the first house built in what became Amsterdam, New York. It's in within the confines of the city limits, in the modern day, the building is situated on the Mohawk River slash Barge Canal, right next to one of the canal locks and right next to one of the uh, canal movable dams. And it's been that way since the early 1900s. But originally, Guy Park Manor was built by a guy who I'm always talking about, Dave, I sometimes think you must get sick of hearing about Sir William Johnson, but he has to do with this story. All right. Uh, well, we're, we're interested. Keep going, Bob. Well, he built Guy Park Manor for his nephew, whose name was Guy. That's where the guy comes from. And Guy, nephew of Sir William Johnson, had come to America. He was in, originally from Ireland, as was uh, Sir William Johnson, uh, and he wanted to seek out his uncle, which he did, uh, his uncle being Sir William Johnson. And he also sought out his uncle's daughter, Polly, uh, Polly Johnson. And Guy and Polly got married, and they needed a place to live, so Sir William built them this mansion. Um, it was, uh, I think, built in the 1760s, 
something like that. It was built after um, Sir William had uh, built his first stone mansion in Fort Johnson, which is generally called Old Fort Johnson. Well, kind of all hell broke loose after they built Guy Park Manor. Within a couple of years, you know, or maybe couples is too too few, but the the Polly and Guy Johnson only lived there a few years when the revolution, the American Revolution, kind of became hot stuff, and uh, they had to flee. They they fled uh, to Canada. Previously, before the war started, Sir William Johnson died. The family patriarch died. So Guy Johnson, along with John Johnson, another son of Sir William Johnson, who uh, took over the old Fort Johnson after uh, the it, it, his um, father died, they decamped to Canada, but that didn't mean they stayed there during the Revolution. Both Guy and John and others, like Joseph Brandt and so forth, were involved in raids on uh, the rebel settlers, if you will, uh, in the Mohawk Valley. So they had to leave Guy and Polly Johnson. There's some talk that the um, building is haunted. Um, one uh, report of the haunting uh, says it was because of uh, Polly Johnson was coming down there to check to see that the place was all right. Another was that the ghost was uh, somehow summoned by Guy Johnson, who wanted um, the ghost to take an inventory of what was happening at uh, Guy Park Manor. But be that as it may, um, Guy Park Manor's down by originally just the river. And then after the... Uh, we came to the 20th century and they built the barge canal. It was next to what is commonly called the uh, Erie Canal. The um, manor was uh, used uh, by private individuals. People, uh, in fact, a man named James Stewart uh, lived there for a while. He was a contractor. He built some um, bridges and so forth for the railroad. And the railroad, when it was built uh, in uh, the Mohawk Valley, went right in front of Guy Park Manor. And that proved unfortunate for Mr. Stewart because he was hit, struck and killed by a train uh, when he was uh, crossing the tracks. And that happened fairly often. Uh, and that was one of the things that made... Guy Park Manor not as attractive, uh, let's say a tourist attraction when it became possible to have things like that uh, because of, of these pesky railroad tracks. He had to cross the railroad to get uh, to Guy Park Manor. Well, again, when the 20th century dawns, they make uh, the Mohawk River into the Barge Canal, and they've got this neat kind of movable dam that goes across the river. And they, th they think, and the people that owned the um, Guy Park Manor at the time was 
the State Canal Corporation, uh, they they thought, well, we can use the manor uh, to help build the Barge Canal. So they stored a lot of stuff there, you know, engineering materials and construction materials and things like that. And it it was sort of a sad end of the that building, but uh, the historical forces, I think chiefly the daughters of the American Revolution, uh, came along and said, well, why don't, why don't we make this into an historic site? So they hired a custodian. They still have the problem of the, of the trains and so forth. Um, and then over the 20th century, different organizations occupied Guy Park Manor. Paul Tonko, the then a state assemblyman, had his office there. Chamber of Commerce had its office there. Then came the museum, the Walter Elwood Museum, and then came the floods. And I think a lot of us who live in lived in Amsterdam or lived in the valley just don't quite get why the Canal Corporation and the others, I think the New York Power Authority, honestly operates for, uh, Guy Park Manor. Now, wh why they didn't do anything? I mean, they had spent a lot of money uh, restoring this building, and I guess they just didn't have enough money to make it useful. So now with money flying uh, from, uh, partly because of the pandemic, I believe, the, the a lot of money for um, building things, build back better, uh, President Biden is fond of saying, they've uh, started to do that once again at Guy Park Manor. They're putting their attention uh, to making it into and that's what's still not quite clear to me, making it into what? Is it going to be a museum? Is it going to be something? It's not going to be a place where people live, um, but they intend to make it more attractive to people who want to come and visit there. And um, the, even so far as to have access to the immovable dam and having a pedestrian bridge across uh, the Mohawk River uh, Barge Canal so you can get to the other side. So that's what's going on at Guy Park Manor in uh, Amsterdam, New York. And uh, Dave Green uh, made the point that with spending all that money, if that's what they're going to do, $36 million, a lot of it would be spent on flood mitigation or flood prevention. I think that's true, Dave. Yet uh, I would hope that some engineers are saying, yeah, I think you better do this before you do that. Yeah, um, but they, the point is that I guess they want to they wanna do something with the Guy Park Manor. One other um, point about the manors, uh, it's an old stone building, and it's one of the few buildings in upstate New York, I would say, that has to do with the loyalists, with the Tories, with the people who were fighting against the rebels or whatever you want to say in the in the American Revolution. Uh, Hugh Donlan had sort of a, a pithy quote, uh, something to the effect of, "It, it, um, that building 
may reflect what could have been had the revolution failed. In other words, if the American Revolution had failed, well, then Guy Park Manor probably would have gone back to the Johnson family and they would have gone on from there. That's a, that's an inter, that's an interesting point. Who, I don't think I've ever ever heard you discuss too often, Bob. What all of these stories you've told? What if it all failed? Yeah, what if it failed? Um, you know, and it wasn't necessarily a, a given that it would succeed or succeed the way it did. I mean, we might have lost the Mohawk Valley to the let's say the British and the Native peoples uh, who. Uh, to take possession of the land farther north. Another story I wanted to get in in this um, sort of uh, look back at some of the topics that we've covered in podcasts and in columns uh, focused on history in the Recorder and the Gazette is the story of Rod Carell. And I know you spent a lot of time editing Rod Carell, Dave. Uh, I found him a very interesting man. Indeed. He was giving some real insight at what it's like to run a family business. Yep, that's exactly it. He um, was uh, was born in 1935, I believe, and he was the third generation of Leathermen in his family. His uh, father, or I'm sorry, his grandfather was Herman Lowenstein, who started the company called Herman Lowenstein back in 1893, uh, and it was an export-import leather company. But then along comes um, Lowenstein's son, who is Rudy Carell. And that's, you know, that's uh, what? Obviously, Rudy changed his name. Uh, the name he used, Carell, uh, was his mother's maiden name, and that became his last name and the last name of his son, Rod. Um, Rudy Carell was a very successful businessman. They used fine leather, uh, which you know they'd purchase on the market or whatever, and where they and made from that leather women's pocketbooks, and high-end women's shoes. And um, Rudy Carell uh, operated kind of a salon in New York City where people came and, and looked at the products and, you know, maybe there was some whining and dining that uh, went on and they, they bought their shoes and handbags from Rudy Carell. Well, uh, Rudy's son, Rod, is growing up in the leather business. He goes, uh, since he was 10 years old, I believe he said, he would work summers, at least part of each summer, uh, at the leather shop that they had in New York City. And he also went on a big European adventure that his father had put together. His father had apparently had a lot of sayings, and his father said, work before pleasure. And so he wanted his son Rod to learn about tanning leather, which they hadn't done up to that point. They didn't do it themselves. They bought previously tanned leather. A tanned leather is 
been subjected to the chemical um, bath or whatever uh, to turn the, the hides of the animals into, into leather, Rudy wanted his son Rod to know more about how you do that. So he sent him over to Scotland where there was a tannery and he said, get your hands dirty doing that and then you can do whatever you want for a couple of weeks uh, in, um, uh, on vacation in England and uh, Scotland. Um, so Rod did that and he said that his father sort of preached to him about doing things that you had to do first, and then you could do things for pleasure. Time goes on. Uh, Rod Carell is more and more involved in the family business, which is still called Lewinstein Leather, I believe. And his father, Rudy Carell, buys a tannery. Uh, so they have their own tannery. Uh, they bought the tannery uh, called Ellathorpe up in uh, Gloversville uh, in 1941. And then things kind of went south or went bad uh, for the Correll family. Rudy was not well. He had a stroke, I believe, and a heart attack. And um, eventually, you know, obviously, as all of us do, he died. But he didn't die until... 1966, when Rod took over the business. But when Rod took over the business, he found from the bankers and so on that the business was really in terrible shape. And they had all these people that worked for them in New York City, and he had to let them go. And I think that really bothered him. Obviously, it bothered the people who were let go more, but it, it wasn't like a robber baron or something like that. I uh, kind of have a certain amount of sympathy for uh, Rod Carell, uh, saying that he had maybe 35 employees in New York City, and he had to furlough 30 of them because he could offer them a job in Gloversville, but they didn't want to come to Gloversville. They were in their 50s and 60s, and uh, their life had always been uh, in New York City. So uh, eventually the... Uh, Herman Lowenstein, a company gets bought out by a conglomerate, and in a way, that's the end of that. Rod Carell goes back to Yale. He was a graduate of Yale University, and he went back to Yale specifically to uh, study small businesses and how small businesses can be um, made more humane. And uh, th that's sort of the point of his his book um, about Leatherman, or Becoming a Leatherman. Uh, he said he wrote the book more or less for his children. So all in all, Bob, what you were saying about the family business, Rod Carell and his travels with his father and grandfather, is in some cases, don't go into, don't go into business. Well, yeah, business is, business is business, as they say. And, and I remember from this scenario from the other side of the street, if you will, because my family members say, well, not exclusively, maybe I had one uncle who ended up in management, but my family members were all worker bees. You know, they weren't in charge of businesses. They work for them. And of course, 
when you do that, you have maybe not as much sympathy for the people that are making these tough decisions that uh, Rod Carell made. It's, it's, certainly a, it's certainly a give and take. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, we've been uh, giving you some stories from uh, history columns, focus on history in the Daily Gazette and Amsterdam Recorder and uh, the Historians podcast. Quite often now we run run both. I mean, we get a, a podcast and then well make a, a column uh, out of it, if you will. Um, for example, we had um, the column, and I've not done a podcast about it in a long time, but about the Bowlers uh, Brewing Company. That was the beer maker in Amsterdam, existed for many years, basically until Prohibition uh, put an, an end to it. Uh, and then it revived in the 30s when Prohibition ended. But here's another, here's an interesting point, I think, or I wonder why it didn't take on the second time around. They had the brewery, they had the equipment and so forth, they had the different beer products, but uh, in the 1930s, a Bowler's Brewery never really became big like it was in the Let's say nineteen teens. I think maybe. I think maybe you, you like like with so many other things in life, Bob. You lose your timing. You lose your pace. Yeah. Uh, who 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 knows? And this was the beginning to the end of the brewery, so to speak. It's time and space. It was finally trying to get back up to speed right after prohibition ended. Yes. Yes, they did, and they. And they did sell beer, but I think by then people wanted what modern beer. They wanted Pabst Blue Ribbon or Budweiser, the the big brands that we've come to know. And there's been kind of a turnaround now. Yeah, I would, and I'm sure there's people who live in Amsterdam or and are interested in beer who think, you know, we can make a go of bowlers once again. Those strange, you know, Amsterdam ale, uh, things like that. Uh, Okay, so it boils down to, so to speak, uh, tastes change. Yeah, Yeah. tastes change. Yeah. Practices change. Yeah, and a lot of home brews, i got to admit, I'm not not much of a beer drinker by any means, but it it does seem to me that um, some of the home brews are, Kind of far out there in taste, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They make them from odd things like chocolate and whatever. <laughs> That's a good point, too. That's well, right. you know, I've had two beers in the past six months. One was, I mean, you and I even talked about this. I had a beer, uh, a Bud Light. I thought it was just awful. <laughs> just terrible. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I guess you got to go for you got to go for the. It sounds to me like if you're going to have a beer, I mean, Bud Light is so popular with so many people. Uh, good beer, really, but uh, you really got to go. I think if you're going to have a beer, let's get to the gusto part. That's right. Get to the gusto. Yeah. Um, and the beer I had more recently was, and I'm not even sure what this means. 
but it was an India Pale Ale. Oh, oh, that stuff! That stuff is is, is dishwater in many cases. At, le- <laughs> it, it, at, at least, a, at least a personal opinion. And and it, they, once again, that stuff is extremely po- good, good stuff and popular with the folks. Yeah, and they're, they're well anyway. So maybe somebody will revive um, Bowler's Brewery. Who knows? I don't know how much time we have left, but I want to get in a few words about duck and cover. There was a man named Edward Cushman, who was superintendent of schools in Amsterdam, New York. And he's the one who had the sad office or the responsibility to explain to us, like kindergartners and first graders, what nuclear war was all about. <laughs> do, you, do you have a couple of minutes? Maybe somebody could explain it to us. I know, but he put out a memo, and I presume he wasn't the only one who did this. I think that other school superintendents put out memos based on what the state was telling them about how to prepare for a, a nuclear bomb and line up by the... <laughs> The uh, wall in the basement. Yeah, that'll do it every time, Bob. (laughs) Put your head under your uh, desk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and and say goodbye to your friends. And duck and cover. Uh, Always interested in what happens to people. Mr. Cushman uh, was superintendent, seems to me, forever. You know, when I was in school, it was always Edward Cushman. I mean, that wasn't... The case there were other, mostly men back then, but more women now. But um, but Cushman, it seemed to me, was in in power that is power for a long time. But then he went and and worked for some uh, charity, uh, you know, a national uh, charity like the, the college fund or or something like that. So he he did have a life after Amsterdam. And that's what a lot of people are looking for, Dave, is life after something. It, it, does, it does seem so. It seems as though everybody who had a, a great job, or at least you perceive their job as a great job, what they really wanted to do was be a carpenter. Yes, <laughs> if I were a carpenter. Yep. And before we go, a couple of minutes about Norm Bolin, chairman of the board of the Fort Plain Museum. He's been uh, talking to the folks from... Florentine Films, the Ken Burns Production Company. And who knows, they might be coming our way to do a documentary on the American Revolution. We certainly have the the bona fides for that. I mean, we really had the revolution in the Mohawk Valley. And um, one place that um, Norm says that was very instructive and uh, welcomed by the folks from Florentine Films was the Palatine Church, uh, the church that was uh, spared uh, during one of the raids uh, by the British loyalists and the American Indians and, to some extent, uh, British troops, uh, Palatine Church in the uh, Mohawk Valley. They did some shooting already. Uh, Some video was recorded uh, he said they they really like um, they like early morning shots. I just realized the way I said that sounds like I'm talking about 
having a shot. No, no, no. Um, this is about uh, visual shots that are uh, done by Florentine films. So that's something to keep in mind. We might be uh, hearing more from Ken Burns about uh, what's uh, about the Mohawk Valley and the American Revolution. Well, anyway, these are some of the stories that uh, we've been uh, telling around the uh, Historians podcast and the uh, columns that we write for the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder. So I thank you for spending some time with us. Help us reach our goal with our GoFundMe campaign. Write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You can also give electronically by going to our website, bobcudmore.com, and clicking on the GoFundMe button.